0: By becoming a monthly patron, you'll also receive our weekly newsletter.
1: On an Australian government website, they have announced their plans to construct what they refer to as an alternative quarantine hub with relocatable cabins for those who must be removed from civil society due to the risk of COVID. Relocatable cabin sounds an awful lot like a fancy word for camp. That's apparently what they're building. And I've already seen the apologizing happening on Twitter. These people are Nazis, make no mistake. When they're like, oh, calm down, they're building an internment facility. It's no big deal. Just get on the train and head out to the camp.
2: Welcome to the Quillette Podcast. I'm Jonathan Kay. What you just heard was a snippet from popular podcaster and YouTuber, Tim Poole, denouncing Australia's aggressive system of containing the spread of COVID-19. And Poole is not alone over the summer a variety of right-wing outlets seized on scary-looking photos of Australian quarantine facilities to denounce what they presented as authoritarian even fascistic pandemic policies in some cases they even used the term concentration camp a historically loaded term that suggests these facilities will be used to punish political prisoners or worse With me to discuss the facts about Australia's anti-COVID measures is Josh Zeps, a broadcaster with ABC, that's the Australian Broadcasting Corporation, and the host of Uncomfortable Conversations, which is another great podcast you should be listening to. In our conversation, he debunked the idea that Australia is running some kind of concentration camp system. And in doing so, we also went deep into Australia's unique experience with COVID, This is a place that, unlike almost every other developed country, didn't really have much of a Covid problem until just a few months ago. And it was the sudden appearance of the Delta strain in 2021 that caused the country to take aggressive measures. Measures that might raise eyebrows in other parts of the world, but which make a certain kind of sense when you consider Australia's unique geography and history with the pandemic. Oh, and trigger warning, Josh uses some odd Australian expressions, such as, go like the clappers, which despite what you may think is not a reference to venereal disease, Uh, just to be sure I looked it up. Anyway, I spoke to Josh last week over Skype, and here are excerpts from our conversation. Before we get into what's going on in Australia now, could you give us a little bit of a thumbnail history of how COVID has affected Australia? Because it's not the normal arc of events.
1: Mm. Yeah, no, I think that's a really good place to start, John, because I've been talking a bit about this to American audiences lately, and I feel like there's something that's not landing, that's that's missing from the conversation. And I suspect that it might be partly that without sounding condescending people outside of australia have forgotten what life was like in the before times like i don't think they fully appreciate when when they hear that australia has had success in eliminating coronavirus up until a few months ago i think people have forgotten abroad what it was like to be able to walk around without fearing other people without having to wear a mask without having to kvetch about whether or not you should be going outside or stress out about how packed the supermarket is, go to a cinema and laugh with other people and not worry that there was someone sitting next to you who might be infectious. Like these are all the things that Australians have been doing. Going to con I went to see Hamilton in February when the rest of the world was hunkered down. So in twenty twenty, in March, the day before Donald Trump announced a ban on travel from China, which turned out not to be a ban on anything, really, it was a ban on, I think, Chinese people from coming into the States, but there were still plane loads of passengers coming off flights from China and being disgorged into the American community. The day before that, the Australian Prime Minister announced a ban on all foreigners coming into Australia. He may have done it in two stages, may have been China and then the rest of the world. But basically, non-Australians were banned from entering the country in March of 2020. And all Australians who were going to be returning home would have to go into a mandatory quarantine system, which was going to be managed essentially repurposing hotels, Marriottes and Ramadas and, you know, Sofitels and Novatels and things like that in the big cities. And if you arrived on a plane from abroad and those flights were, su- were going to be subject to passenger to inbound passenger caps so that uh, we wouldn't be deluged by, with millions of Australian expatriates coming back to the country, you would be met at the airport, literally by border officials, and taken in a shuttle bus to a four-star hotel where you would be fed and housed for two weeks, and you would be tested and then released. And as a result of that border enforcement, Australia was essentially able to run its own set of experiments about how to suppress the virus. And the virus was here. We had significant daily case numbers. Fortunately, we didn't have anything like what you saw in the US and Europe just yet in a strange quirk of history that may have been partly because the bushfires had been so devastating over the southern summer of 2019 into 2020 that a lot of people who would otherwise have been holidaying in Australia in November, December, January canceled their their trips, the nation was on fire. And as a result, that may have actually been a contributing factor to sparing us a level of coronavirus infection from abroad that we wouldn't have been able to get on top of. But we did get on top of it with essentially a nine week lockdown And this was very common all over the world. I mean, in March, April of 2020, almost everywhere was in some form of hunkering inside, sheltering indoors, trying to figure out what the hell was going on. And the Australian government recruited a massive contact tracing effort, in part by rehiring people who worked at the national airline Qantas, who had just been laid off when all the flights were grounded, and turning them into contact tracers and establishing a sort of a QR code system. This was a state by state thing, but all the states participated in establishing QR codes so that when people would be released from self-isolation, they'd be able to check in with a state government app that would enable contact tracers to track down people who would bumped into Is this like a
2: proto-vaccine
1: passport system you're talking about? It wasn't thought of that at the time. It it may subsequently become something like that, although I suspect they'll probably become two parallel systems at the time it was purely because there's such a long period between catching the virus and becoming symptomatic those several days are crucial we have to be able to figure out how to track down people who who have encountered someone who didn't know that they were infectious and that level of contact tracing is pretty standard it's world's best practice it's the kind of thing that was being done in in japan and south korea and taiwan and a lot of other countries that proved successful you you basically have to be able to tell somebody hey yesterday when you're at the supermarket you were there at the same time as someone else who was there who was infectious so stay so get tested and then stay inside until you get your test results back that's the gist of it and through the use of the lockdown and contact tracing we were able to essentially eliminate the virus and between may of 2020 in New South Wales and most states, and June of 2021, Sydney had 13 months of living the way that people in the rest of the world, with very, very few exceptions, like New Zealand, can only remember as a distant memory. We did have outbreaks from hotel quarantine, because nothing is perfect. And we hadn't built dedicated quarantine systems and and still haven't. There's a lot of civil libertarian concerns, obviously, about quarantine camps for people who are coming in. So as a result, it was always done on an ad hoc basis.
2: If I remember correctly, there was a tragicomic subplot involving, I think it was a guard who was having romantic liaisons.
1: (laughs) So in Melbourne, there was a there was an allegation, which we believed was true at the time, but subsequently um, disputed, that, yeah, one of the guards at the quarantine hotel was, yeah, having sex with people, with infectious travellers who had come in from abroad. Voluntary sex, I might add, so at least there's no national uh, Me Too scandal out of this, but that subsequently plunged Melbourne into, into a lockdown that was very, very harsh last southern winter. So the first time, I think, that people became aware of... The harshness of Australia's lockdown response was in Melbourne for, what was it? I think it was about 12 weeks or something, 15 weeks or something like that. There were a lot of problems in Victoria's, Victoria is the state where Melbourne is located. And in Australia, the healthcare systems and the policing and everything is done on a state-by-state basis. So the lockdowns are as well. And there were a lot of problems that led to that. Like, why was a guard like that, the person who was guarding the quarantine hotels in New South Wales, the largest state where Sydney is, the, the guarding of hotels and all the management of quarantine was undertaken by police and military people. And in Victoria, it was just regular old security guards who might have been bouncers at nightclubs and stuff and private security firms who are going to be presumably less likely to follow the rules than someone in the military is. So all of this is a very long winded way of saying that when Delta came along in June, Australians were sanguine. We thought, We've got this. New South Wales had been through a number of outbreaks from hotel quarantine and had successfully managed them through aggressive contact tracing, mass testing, free testing, constant testing. And so as the case numbers climbed from single digits into double digits, Sydney didn't lock down. Sydney and the Premier of New South Wales, who's like the governor of the most populous state, or province, had prided herself on being a pro-economic freedom, to whatever extent that's possible in the Australian context, and light-touch leader when it came to coronavirus, in contrast to her main rival, who would be the premier of the second most popular state, Victoria. He's a left-wing guy, very keen to lockdown, perceived by many other people in Australia as being too jittery and too erring on the side of public health versus economics, The conservative female leader of New South Wales, by contrast, was all about keeping Sydney a vibrant and open city as much as possible. And as a result, when Delta came along and upended all of the epidemiological assumptions that had made her strategy successful for 13 months, the cat got out of the bag. Cases did what cases of Delta are doing all over the world. 20 cases a day turned to 40, 80 160 and pretty soon we were cracking a thousand cases a day and there was no putting the genie back in the bottle. And unfortunately, our vaccination program was bungled by the federal government in terms of procuring enough vaccines early enough. And also there was a certain sanguineness about the Australian response. So nobody felt a great urgency to get vaccinated quickly. So we currently find ourselves in this purgatory where we're not quite vaccinated enough to be able to open up without plunging ourselves into the sorts of healthcare mayhem that most other countries endured last March, April, May, but we also aren't COVID free enough to avoid isolating ourselves. So we're in a, most Australians in Sydney and Melbourne, at least, currently find themselves in a lockdown until we hit vaccination rates that enable us to open up without swamping the hospitals.
2: So let's talk about vaccination, because Was Australia, in a sense, too successful at first? Like, were there people in Australia saying maybe we'll never have to get vaccinated because this thing will just flare out in the rest of the world?
1: No, 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 I don't think there was that. Certainly not since June of 2020 when when it became apparent that we weren't going to be able to put this back in the bottle quickly. The pace of vaccinations in Australia at the moment outstrips anything that ever took place in the US or the UK. But
2: that's the interesting thing is that you got this really slow start, but I'm curious how you caught up so quickly.
1: Well, we we got terrified by the current lockdown, uh, basically, John. I mean, earlier this year. So the backstory to the vaccine screw-up is that in June and July of 2020, The big drug companies came to all the big Western democracies, the rich countries, and said, all right, let's have a conversation about what you're going to need and when you're going to need it and how much you're willing to pay for it. And there is some credible reporting that Pfizer fingered Australia as being a possible case study to throw a lot of... Pfizer at and vaccinate everyone very quickly. They also identified Israel as a good candidate country for this. And with Israel, they did it. In Australia, the government received a call from Pfizer and emails from Pfizer saying, would you like to meet? This was back in June of last year. The health minister declined even to meet with Pfizer. Pfizer wanted the health minister and the minister's staff to sign non-disclosure agreements before the meeting. And they declined to do so and said, oh, why don't you just spitball and give us some vague ideas so we don't have to sign anything. And there are some reports that the junior health staffer who attended the first meeting with Pfizer was a bit cocky and swaggering and started nickel and diming them and asking about money. And Pfizer's plan to essentially vaccinate this island nation that had zero coronavirus and watch it open up and make it a great PR case for Pfizer for the rest of the world fizzled away. Now, there are only two sources for this reporting, but there are some documents that have been obtained under Freedom of Information requests that show some emails between Pfizer and the department. And it's certainly clear that the health minister didn't meet with Pfizer at the time. It's also very clear that the United States, the United Kingdom and Canada all got in their Pfizer orders in June, July and August. Canada was the last of the Anglophone countries to get theirs in on August 5th. Australia didn't get ours in until November of 2020. This wasn't pure insanity. Australia has a manufacturing capacity for AstraZeneca vaccines, for those uh, more traditional styles of vaccines. And there was some promising research coming out of the University of Queensland for a new vaccine. So the idea was do it local, get it done with the tried and tested vaccines. These newfangled mRNA things might pan out, but they also may well not. We don't want the bad publicity of throwing too much money at something that turns out to have been a fool's errand. You know, when you say, like, was there ever a sense that you don't need to get vaccinated? If you cast your mind back to, like, May, June of 2020, especially after the success of the lockdowns in Australia, there was a certain... Vaccines seemed this faraway moonshot thing. A lot of people were saying they might not even come in 2022. There was a lot of uncertainty. Nonetheless, the upshot was that when Australia finally managed to get its act together, there were problems with AstraZeneca. They caused rare blood clotting in some people. That was miscommunicated to the Australian public. AstraZeneca became perceived to be the the second best option, one that people to this day in Australia are shunning, even though based on the science it's just as effective and the blood clot risk is about one in a million so we've been hanging out waiting for pallets of Pfizer to be wheeled off freighter planes coming in from abroad instead of taking our own perfectly good AstraZeneca vaccines. And I think that that you're right that the the slow walking of it is just a consequence of our own success. We were living in a bubble. I mean, earlier this year, the prime minister was asked about the slow pace of the vaccine rollout, and he literally said, this is not a race. It's kind of a race. <laughs> It has race-like qualities. You can imagine, John, how that has come to bite him in the ass now. (laughs) People are saying, is it still not a race? (laughs) Of course it's a race. However, there were kind of two tiers of countries when it came to vaccinations. There were the countries that were enduring runaway epidemics with massive casualties like North America and most of Europe. And then there were countries like East Asia and Australia and New Zealand where vaccination rates were low, vaccine rollout was slow. But I can assure you we are now going absolutely like the clappers and Australia will reach extremely high rates of vaccination, I'm sure, because as we will talk about, and as a lot of the criticism of Australia notes, we are a fairly, some might say communitarian, others might say authoritarian people. We are quite comfortable with carrots and sticks and sticks if the carrots don't work. So I think you'll see considerable disadvantages to being unvaccinated in Australia and I think each state will choose its own level of punishment, but the idea that you can be unvaccinated and go into any restaurant or cafe or sporting event or aeroplane or whatever in Australia is is not going to be the case. Once the only people who are unvaccinated are people who've chosen not to, rather than people who haven't been able to to get vaccinated yet. I think we're just nudging 50% double vaxxed. We've passed 70% first vaxxed. We're supposed to hit 70% fully vaxxed of over 16s on October 18 or 19 in New South Wales, which will put 80% uh, at the end of, October, end of October, beginning of November, something like that. And at that point, epidemiologists say you can start to breathe a sigh of relief enough people are there that you're not going to get smashed so
2: in terms of the velocity of vaccination this must be maybe the highest in the world
1: yeah probably would be can
2: i also just say that the idiom absolutely like the clappers does not seem to have made its way to all english-speaking nations
1: To go like the clappers is to go very, very fast.
2: (laughs) By the way, this thing you say is quite interesting about how it's the states that have jurisdiction over healthcare and other policy issues. The same is true of Canada and the provinces. The, The states or provinces become policy laboratories. And it sounds like you had a very real high stakes policy dispute and real time scientific experiment
1: going on. And it sounds like Victoria won. Uh, that's interesting. So many Australians would say Victoria One, if they are the the types of people who are comfortable with lockdowns and prioritise public health over everything else. Yes, we've had a lab experiment going on between New South Wales and Victoria for the past 18 months, but boy, are we about to face a doozy. Is doozy something I can say? Is that, has that made it outside of Australia yet? Yes.
2: It's a little old-fashioned. It's like, gee willikers.
1: We haven't quite caught up with the 21st century yet. We're still talking about doozies. Why, I tell you, <laughs> it sure is a shining doozy. So we are about to have a doozy of a, of a lab experiment in the sense that the New South Wales Premier has pledged that the state is going to open up at 70% vaccination of over 16s. And the report on which that assumption or that recommendation was included as as something that might be vaguely responsible to do is called the Doherty Report. It was commissioned by a a think tank called the Doherty Institute. Healthcare professionals, epidemiologists, brilliant people, they had initially made their assumptions on the basis of where Australia was at before the Delta outbreak. And their assumptions were that If you had negligible daily cases, if contact traces were on top of all the cases and were successfully isolating anyone who had come into contact with infectious people, if hospitals were empty and had lots of capacity, you could gently start to open up the international border and allow the quarantine system to gradually be dismantled and allow essentially coronavirus to begin circulating endemically once you hit 70% double vaccination of the eligible population. That number has now become the sort of shining light on the hill, the lodestar of everything in New South Wales, because we are so bloody sick and tired of being in isolation and working from home, that the Premier has said, we're basically going to let everything rip once we hit 70%, even though case numbers are not low, as they'd been assumed to be in the modelling, they are in the 1,200 to 1,500 new cases a day range, which completely swamps the contact tracers who are incapable of tracking that many people. This is going to be a lab experiment, and the subjects are going to be the people of New South Wales, and we will see whether or not I mean, hospitals are already buckling under the pressure of the caseload at the moment, and it's going to get considerably worse before it gets better over the next six to eight weeks. And we may be about to unleash ourselves upon each other, shedding viruses all over each other at a vaccination rate that's too low to avoid some serious outcomes. But the New South Wales government is making the call that that is preferable to overdoing the lockdown. In terms of people's mental health in terms of the state's financial success and the other states will be watching very very closely what happens victoria just to loop back to your comment that maybe victoria had the better strategy i would question that because although victoria's cautiousness meant that they didn't have the same outbreak as new south wales has faced you really do have to think about the cost of having been plunged repeatedly into so many lengthy lockdowns over the course of the pandemic. It certainly saved a lot of lives, but did it save so many lives that it wouldn't have been preferable under the Wuhan strain rather than the Delta strain to have a policy more akin to Sydney's where it was much looser and you were flying a lot closer to the sun and you were taking a lot more risks. You know, now in hindsight, it looks foolish for Sydney to have played so fast and loose with a a deadly pathogen and to have let it out. And obviously everyone else in the rest of Australia is absolutely furious at the policymaking in Sydney and New South Wales, there is intense white hot anger in Melbourne, not just in the political class, but on the street that we have forced them into yet another lockdown because it escaped from New South Wales into Victoria because we didn't want to go full hard on lockdown with curfews and, you know, calling it really fast and really, really strict the way that Melbourne does. We did our loosey goosey tropical Sydney beachy, like hedonistic attitude to to locking down. Sorry,
2: what you're describing here, it's like members of a family that have been locked in the house and start bickering yeah. <laughs> and everything comes out. Like, well, well, isn't that just like you? Yeah. Go to the beach while I'm hard at work, just like always. Yes,
1: yes, that's absolutely, That's that's quite insightful, John. I hadn't really thought about it that way, but it's true. Melbourne, for people who don't understand the dynamics of the two cities, Australia is very urbanized it's it's ironic, it's paradoxical, because we think of Australia as being this vast landmass. It's the same size as the contiguous United States. But it has a lot in common with Canada in, in this way, which is that the vast landmass is a place where nobody lives. And in actual fact, the average Australian and the average Canadian live in just several very large cities. The two huge cities, Sydney and Melbourne, which are home to almost half of the whole country's population, Melbourne is cooler in terms of its climate, it's more European in terms of its feel, it's more sophisticated, more artistic, more cautious and conservative in in a small C way. It's a financial hub, it's a bit more Jewish to whatever extent that matters, and Sydney is bright lights, big city, it's the larger of the two cities, although that balance is tipping and Melbourne is is set to overtake Sydney, because Sydney is unaffordable, explosive, glorious, glamorous, like Sydney is the, is the starlet, and Melbournians would say the whore, uh, with the beaches and the harbour and the opera house and the harbour bridge and, uh, and the sunshine and the Instagrammers. And you're right that the two attitudes towards, the, towards locking down versus letting a rip have been quite stark. Now, of course, all of this is in the context of an Australian approach to coronavirus that has been extremely aggressive, and that is currently being misrepresented in all sorts of nonsensical ways in the United States but once people understand that we are essentially a nation that is time shifted to 15 months in the past then our current lockdowns seem a little bit more comprehensible we're all locked down not because we love being locked down in, indefinitely but because we're insufficiently vaccinated and and we don't have any background Natural immunity to coronavirus because we don't have any significant portion of the population who ever got it. I mean, most people here don't know anyone who knows anyone who ever caught coronavirus. It's not like elsewhere, it just hasn't been a thing. So, if we did toughen up and just come out of our lockdown now, then our hospitals would face what hospitals in the rest of the world faced in April of 2020. If we open up, we don't turn into Florida today, but we turn into New York in March of 2020. That's why we're locked down now. It's not because we're hysterical ninnies. It's because we're essentially living 15 months in the past.
2: And now a commercial message from Skillshare, one of our sponsors for this episode of the Quillette podcast. Skillshare is an online learning community that offers membership with meaning. If you're looking to develop your professional skill set, there's plenty of courses to choose from, including logos and branding, web development, film, and video. In my case, I've taken courses on Adobe Photoshop and used that knowledge to design some of the graphics you see on the Quillette website. Skillshare classes include a combination of video lessons and a class project so you can apply what you've learned. Members get unlimited access to thousands of inspiring classes, most of which are under 60 minutes, with short lessons to fit any schedule. Whether you're a dabbler or a pro, Skillshare will help you experience real improvement with classes designed for real life in a supportive environment. Explore your creativity at Skillshare.com slash Quillette and get a one-month free trial premium membership. That's s-k-i-l-l-s-h-a-r-e dot com slash q-u-i-double-l-e-double-t-e skillshare.com slash quillette. And now back to our quillette podcast. I lived briefly in Australia and I, I saw the two extremes. This is years ago, but... I worked in Mount Isa in the middle of Queensland, which is on the rural extreme. Wow. And then I was in Sydney. It's a lovely country, but people are getting the wrong impression, I take it, because if you look on the American media, and and now we're getting into something that sounds like it's not that controversial in Australia, but wow, it's made waves, certainly on right-wing media in the West— you have these quarantine camps in fairly isolated parts of the island and photos of these camps, which make them look something like refugee camps or worse, are circulating on social media. And the idea is that if you're coming from afar or if you have COVID, you're, you're sent in some cases to these camps. And here's the thing that gets people into There's sort of like armed guards outside them. Mm. It really does have this sort of escape from New York dystopian aspect to it.
1: If I saw this out of context circulating on Twitter about something that was happening in, you know, Bulgaria or some other country that I had no understanding of, of what's happened there over the past 18 months or of what their political consensus is, I too would be misled into thinking that it was some dystopian authoritarian nightmare. So let me explain what it is. Nobody is being sent there from Australia. Nobody is being rounded up who has coronavirus and sent to a camp. This is part of the inbound quarantine system, which was set up when Australia had managed to successfully eliminate the virus altogether from the whole continent and nonetheless needed a way for Australians to return from abroad without spreading it. And this was pre-vaccines tons of Australians live abroad. You can't let large numbers of infectious people during the height of the pandemic in 2020 come pouring off planes and just hope that they'll self-isolate at home. That makes a mockery of the whole idea of trying to preserve your free way of life where you can go to musicals and go to rock concerts and sit cheek by jowl in the way that Australians were when nobody else in the world could. You have to find a way to stop people from abroad from bringing the virus in. So as I mentioned, the vast majority of people were housed in hotels that had been repurposed. And again, yeah, you need a guard at the at the front of the hotel. I mean, you can't just tell people not to leave their hotel for two weeks. If you're going to have a quarantine system, it has to be a quarantine system. And so that involves enforcement. There was a, a, an existing facility in the Northern Territory. It's basically, it's effectively in the suburbs of Darwin. So an aerial shot makes it look like it's in the middle of the outback, and you know, it's escaped from from New York. It's, it's I think, 30 minutes from downtown Darwin, which is the capital of the Northern Territory. And this was an old, this was a construction workers barracks for a big project that had been done there. And it had been repurposed into military barracks uh, accommodation for a while. And it was just sitting there unused. As an aside, one of the great travesties of the Australian response to coronavirus, which I completely agree with Australia's critics on, is the chaotic mismanagement of the way that Australians can leave or return to the country. there There is a, effectively a ban on leaving the country because they don't want people popping over to Bali for a week for a holiday and then coming back and taking a place in the hotel quarantine system that could have been taken by someone who actually wants to repatriate themselves permanently from, say, the UK to Australia. So to ease the stress on the hotel quarantine, they forced everybody to apply for an exemption to leave the country. Now, this has been also misreported in the American press and elsewhere as being, you know, that you can't leave the country. This is like North Korea or something. You can get an exemption. I know many people who've got an exemption. If you have a loved one who's sick abroad, or if there's a business reason for you to travel, if you're going to be on a panel at the Cannes Film Festival, or you've got a, you want to attend a funeral, then you'll get an exemption to leave. You can also get an exemption very readily if you promise to stay away for more than three months. Like if you're, and if you're a dual national, or if you've got bank accounts or a property or something abroad, if you have connections to some overseas country, then it's apparently quite easy to get the exemption and leave. Nonetheless, I think it's ridiculous, certainly ridiculous at this stage of the pandemic to still be requiring people to apply to the government to leave the country. And it's even more ridiculous that the government imposed these caps, these quarantine caps on inbound passengers coming back to Australia with no systematic way of ensuring that people could actually come there was no government website that an Australian abroad could go onto to, say, all right, I'm securing my place in the hotel quarantine system. And now I can take my, my number that guarantees that I'll be admitted to Australia on, you know, October 22nd. I can take that to the airline and say, I'll buy a ticket. So as a result, what's basically happened is that airlines are selling tickets into Australia to collect a lot of short term cash. And then the day before the flight, when the government when they know exactly how many people are allowed to bring into the country on the basis of how many quarantine hotel rooms are available, they bump everybody off the flight who didn't buy a super expensive fare, and so you've got people abroad who are faced you know who've been bumped three, four, five times off their flights and can't get back unless they fork out for business class or premium economy, which airlines are currently charging ten thousand dollars for, and the government just doesn't seem to care about about this, so that i think is a travesty and that is increasingly controversial and makes absolutely no sense now because it doesn't even take into account your vaccination status. It doesn't take into account your COVID status. It doesn't take anything into account. It may, Actually, it may now take into account your COVID status. I do think you need a test before you get on the plane. But nonetheless, up until recently, it was you had a scenario where thousands of people a day in Sydney getting infected with coronavirus and simply being told to stay at home. And these are unvaccinated people almost exclusively. And then you've got Australians abroad who by and large are fully vaccinated and they can be COVID negative and they can be being bumped off planes because the government isn't providing an increased allocation for those people. They don't have an alternative system yet apart from the hotel quarantine. These systems, such systems are in the works though. And so, and if even if they do get make it on a plane and they don't get bumped and they manage to fork out the tens of thousands of dollars it might cost to get their family back, when they get off the plane as fully vaccinated people who've just tested COVID negative, they get forced to stay in a quarantine hotel for two weeks. While people, you know, even if they're coming from a jurisdiction which ha- has less coronavirus circulating than Sydney now does. So everything's gone a bit perverse because of the situation we're currently in. We're racing to reform that situation, but just to loop back to your quarantine camp thing, in addition to these quarantine hotels, the government put on these Department of Foreign Affairs flights to rescue Australians from places like the UK and India that were having big spikes in cases and Australians weren't able to to fly on commercial planes because they kept getting bumped. So these mercy missions would go out, the government would pay for a bunch of Qantas planes to go over and the Department of Foreign Affairs would run them. So instead of bringing them back into Sydney and putting an additional burden on the existing quarantine system, they flew them into Darwin and housed them in this repurposed workers slash military barracks. That's actually the best place to quarantine if you want to. A lot of people try to find flights that fly into Darwin because you get a a bungalow, it's got an outdoor porch, uh, you can walk around, you get three nice meals a day. The food's quite good, and you can walk outside and you can get exercise and so on.
2: You're also, if I remember correctly, you're also really close to Kakadu National Park, where I just remember
1: being terrified because a lot of crocodiles there, John.
2: Well, they're like a hundred feet long or something. It's just insane
1: yeah that's the crocodile dundee part of the country for people who don't know Kakadu. but so yeah so aerial photos of this of this quarantine camp this repurposed quarantine camp have been going viral in the states and people like tim pool the youtube guy has been tweeting them around saying these are concentration camps where australians are getting rounded up if they're infectious or you know maybe if they just have infectious ideas next you know maybe australian dissident australians will be sent to these quarantine camps they're not for Australians. I mean, they're for people who are coming in from abroad in an attempt to not have Australia go through what the rest of the world has had to go through with such abruptness and chaos. Now, is it, are there human rights concerns about quarantine camps if they became a long term solution to like domestic outbreaks? Of course, it would be horrendous. Australians would be screaming from the rooftops if local Australians were being dragged out of their home and sent to camps in the outback to quarantine. That is not what's happening. It's never what's happened. It's not what anyone has suggested might happen. And were it to happen, that would be the scandal. The scandal is not the use of a repurposed construction worker's bungalow to house people in who are voluntarily choosing to go there because they're voluntarily choosing to come into Australia during a global pandemic, the scandal would be the misuse of that thing. I mean, I retweeted this Tim Pool tweet saying, like, I don't understand this. Concentration, he he calls them a concentration camp. Concentration camps are bad because you send your political prisoners there and you brutalise them. They're not bad because they look ugly in aerial photos. You know, that is the greatest sin of of, of the Howard Springs quarantine camp. It looks ugly, it looks scary in aerial photos.
2: If you're a regular listener to the Quillette podcast, you'll be familiar with BetterHelp, one of our original advertisers. Well, thanks to everything that's happened since early 2020 and the stresses that the pandemic has put on everyone, the online therapy services at BetterHelp are more relevant and in demand than ever. BetterHelp will help you unlock the tools you need to help with motivation, depression, anxiety, battling your temper, stress dealing with insecurity in relationships or at work whatever you need especially at a time like this no one should be anxious about admitting that they're going through normal human struggles because you deserve to be happy better help is customized online therapy that offers video phone and even live chat sessions with your therapist and you don't even have to see anyone on camera if you don't feel comfortable doing so it's much more affordable than in-person therapy, and you can start communicating with your therapist in under 48 hours. Join the millions of people who are seeing what therapy is really about. And Quillette podcast listeners get 10% off their first month by visiting betterhelp.com slash Quillette. Again, that's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com Quillette. Thanks to BetterHelp for their sponsorship. And now back to the Quillette podcast. I was just in Tennessee in the in the southern part of the United States where the vaccination rate is it's less than 50% and it's not for lack of vaccine. All these problems you're talking about in terms of supply, those problems do not exist in the United States. There are states that have sent millions of doses back to federal authorities because they couldn't find people to take them. Is there any equivalent anti-vax movement in Australia where people are spreading misinformation? And I'm not talking about legitimate risk, because of course, you mentioned before about blood clots. And there are certain people with certain kinds of heart irregularities who should talk to their doctor before taking a vaccine. But is there a real mainstream anti-vax movement in Australia?
1: No, and I'm glad you qualified it that way to say a real mainstream one, because I, I would have gotten into trouble to saying that there isn't an anti-vax movement in Australia, because of course there is. But there is no partisan split here like there is in the states, where a significant majority of Republican voters don't believe that the vaccine either is worth taking or that they think it's a conspiracy or they think it was too rushed or whatever. Here, both political parties and voters from both political parties, are equally committed to the vaccine and equally suspicious of the vaccine to whatever extent they are. It's a small minority, it's a very online minority, as you would expect. It's driven by exactly the same forces that you would see in any other country that are largely coming out of the United States. Misinformation being spread by former friends and colleagues of mine and yours. You know, I think what Brett Weinstein has done on his YouTube channel in the past 12 months has discredited him forever in the eyes of a lot of reasonable people. It's
2: very sad. It's yeah. tragic, but it's
1: also very sad. That's right, I mean, it's sad for him, And it's even sadder for his audience. Tragic for everybody else. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. Uh, And so we have that influence here. You know, the word ivermectin exists here.
2: Ivermectin is an amazing drug if you want to avoid getting river blindness in Africa.
1: (laughs) (laughs) That's right, that's right. If you want to prevent yourself from getting COVID-19, go get vaccinated. So yes, there is the, the cohort of like, do your research people, here as well. But it's just as likely to be hippy dippy people on the left who believe their body is a temple and they don't want to contaminate it with vaccines as it is to be right-wingers who think it's a a 5G conspiracy or something. Here's the thing about Australia. There is a sufficiently large and well-informed and cohesive Polity in Australia or demos or whatever fancy, you know, old word you want to call it like a quorum of people who as citizens and voters feel rationally engaged with the functioning of the state and feel that they have an interest in the success of communal projects that has been completely eroded in the United States. And for all of the global hand-wringing about Australian totalitarianism and the infringements on civil liberties as a result of the lockdowns, I just don't think that any country would do otherwise if it had the borders that Australia has, being an island at the end of the world, and if it still had a functioning sense of itself that was not frayed into partisan squabbling. If it, You know, we have universal... Voting here mandatory voting. Everyone feels like they have a stake in the fate of the government in in the in the effective functioning of civil bureaucracy. People trust authorities. There is a, a well-funded and well-educated bureaucratic state that runs things like in all parliamentary democracies. This is another thing that, that the United States, I think, really suffers from not having is a, a an ongoing public service that functions between administrations. You know, there's a lot of talk in the states about a deep state, but really the best aspect of a quote-unquote deep state is people like a public health official who's been working all of his life on pandemics who doesn't get fired when the government A
2: professionalised core of public servants.
1: Exactly, yes. And I think if you have all of that, then you have large majorities of people who are going to come around to things like a vaccine. And the main impediment to vaccination in Australia after supply of the vaccine, which, by the way, the supply is now okay, We've got massive doses of Pfizer and Moderna arriving every day now because our number has come due. But the main impediment I would say now is is just a sort of vague vaccine hesitancy, largely among ethnic communities and you know what you might call low information voters. So it's less of the rabid anti-vax kind of ideology or religion that you might see in the u s. And now it's more just about, holding people by the hand and ensuring that they have the the best information from sources that they trust, community leaders, priests, imams, rabbis, and doctors and healthcare professionals. And I think that the the gap between your sort of 70% vaccination and your 90% vaccination is going to largely be about winning the hearts and minds of an old Chinese grandma who thinks this is all a bit fishy rather than an alt-right incel bro who isn't going to let the government inject microchips into his arm.
2: When I was backpacking through Europe many years ago when I was in the bloom of youth, I was surprised how many Australians I met. And at the time, I think someone told me that on a per capita basis, Australian youth did more world traveling or certainly logged more miles than, than anybody else. Yeah, it would be. Do you think what has happened over the last year and a half will permanently alter that?
1: No, I don't. I think there's a massive pent up itchiness. And I was actually just looking at airfares for later on next year to plan a family holiday to to the States and Europe. And the airfares are already quite high throughout 2022. Demand is enormous. I reckon you're going to see unleashed within the next four to six months in Australia, a deluge of desperate Australians (laughs) traveling abroad. I mean, it's just part of the psyche. What's important for people outside australia who are a bit bemused by the the strict border controls to understand is that australia has always had a national paranoia about being thrust on the other side of the world from all the all of its friends like it is essentially a north american or european country that is lost in the south pacific surrounded by incredibly numerous and powerful bedfellows in indonesia and china uh, and india and as a result it has had a deep fixation on the purity of its border after the second world war when australia transitioned from being essentially a white australia australian you know white british colony to being the massively multi-ethnic country that it is today you know more than half the population has arrived since the second world war a majority of australians have a family member who wasn't born here After the Second World War, the the first wave of mass migration, non-English migration, was sold to the Australian people on the basis that we were going to choose exactly who came here and that we would always retain control over who was coming. And the philosophy was that as long as you allowed people a sense of control, they would actually probably be quite happy to welcome enormous numbers of people in from all kinds of places and have a very high humanitarian and refugee intake. Australia has one of the highest refugee resettlement rates per capita in the world, and one of the highest immigration rates in the world. But the Faustian pact that Aussies have made to sustain a consensus around that is that anyone who tries to come to this country without a permit, in other words, on a boat, is not going to settle here. And we pour a fortune of time and money, which many people regard as not just misguided and not worth it, but a humanitarian catastrophe and a moral monstrosity, (laughs) intercepting boats that try to come to Australia and parking their inhabitants in real concentration camps, not the concentration camps of alt-right bloggers' imaginings in the United States, like the quarantine station, but actual concentration camps on small Pacific Island nations like Nauru and Papua New Guinea, whom we bribe to, to take people so that we don't have to accord them the universal human rights that that are due to them if they were to arrive on Australian soil. It's brutalising, but the rationale is as long as you keep doing that, then the boats stop and the moment you start allowing people, then the boats increase and people drown at sea and you undermine the integrity of the whole thing. I was once a very, very strong critic of this mandatory detention and offshore processing system, and I still think it's not worth having blood on our hands this way. But when I look at Trump and I look at Brexit, I do wonder if ignoring border security brings its own problems. And Aussies are just less abashed and less ashamed about wanting total control over who comes into the country. I say all of this as just a way of contextualising what's happening now with the border and quarantine and keeping coronavirus out. Those policies, which may seem extreme or alien to people in other countries, have to be understood in the context of a nation that has a massive hang-up about being invaded. You're
2: you're sending me down memory lane because I remember when I was living in Mount Isa, this is a long time ago, this is 1990, people spent a lot of time worrying about the Japanese coming and buying their houses. There was this huge... Scare, and I remember looking around Mount Isa, and I said, "Guys, don't worry about it."
1: It's, right, it's like, right. But Mount Isa, yeah.
2: I'd like to yeah. apologize to Sydney, Melbourne, Mount Isa, and Bulgaria. <laughs> uh, all of
1: these places have been name dropped. Let me let me say one last thing, which is: uh, there's a great scene in the movie Gallipoli, which is a, a terrific film. Mel Gibson's in yeah, it. Mel Gibson, he was cancelled like
2: 20 years ago.
1: Yeah, <laughs> this was him. This was him as a young, charming actor. People should seek it out if they can. It's a it's about the the Australian mission in Gallipoli in the First World world war and uh and mel is going over to fight and he's been conscripted in the first world war and they're, he's they're out lost in the desert in the middle of the outback and uh they come upon this old bloke who's sitting in the middle of the desert in a little shack he says where are you guys off to they say we're joining the army we're gonna gonna fight in the war said, why are you going over to fight in the war He says, because they're you know they're we got to fight we've got to defend our country so why you got to defend our country he's like because he like, otherwise they'll overrun the world they'll come here they'll 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 take our land and the old bloke looks out over the vast expanse of empty desert and he goes they can have it (laughs) thanks for being with us yeah no it's a great pleasure anytime john thanks i enjoyed it
0: if you would like to support quillette please consider becoming a patron head to our patreon page that's patreon.com forward slash quillette if you haven't already follow us on social media we're on twitter facebook and instagram do you like what you're hearing Perhaps you would like to read more about the issues in today's discussion. Head to Quillette.com where you'll find more content.